Oh, Father, do be our vision, our ruler of all. We exalt you as such, O oh Lord, and we ask that you be with us and be satisfied with the offerings that we make in this service. May you be glorified in heaven and your saints edified in the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Now I've, I've written down here that we ought to, this morning, excuse me, read verses 15 through 17, a mere three verses. Let me extend the context a little. We'll start in verse 12 once again. And so Paul writes to the Roman church, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the Spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Our Father, we ask that you would add your presence by the Holy Spirit among us this morning to infuse us, O Lord, with the deep meanings of this, your holy word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so I would imagine that these are somewhat familiar verses to you, Romans 8 being one of the great well-traveled triumphant passages of all of the New Testament. Indeed, all of the Bible. And so um, I'm going to ask you to look into this passage with me this morning as I intended originally beginning, beginning at verse 15. So I'm going to go to verse 15 now. And we read, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by who we cry out, Abba, Father. And so this epistle of Paul covers a, a number of different topics as we've seen as we've gone through the book of Romans to this point. Um, a first mention would definitely be the topic of assurance of salvation. Friends, salvation is one thing. Assurance is the enjoyment of it because it, we know in our hearts that it cannot be thwarted by any force other than God himself and he has promised never to do it. He will not repent of choosing you as his blessed elect. And so a first consideration is, of course, the assurance of salvation, which is evident by the opening declaration that says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it ends with a rousing and memorable, and may I say poetic, conclusion that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that 
Nothing in this world or the next will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to say, I'm going to give you an impression of mine as I read the Bible and I think of other companion texts that go along with this. When I think of him saying more than conquerors, what does that conjure in your mind? I'll tell you what it does in my mind. Jesus spoke of a, what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? And I have often said to you, when Jesus said that, he may well have been making a veiled reference to Alexander the Great, who centuries before and up till the date where Jesus said it was the only person in the world ever considered to have gained the whole world. Now he's been compared with Christ. He was called a king of kings. He died at 33 after conquering the world. He's been compared with Christ over the centuries. And it might have been a subtle reference there. And if it was, I would add that maybe the apostle was making a subtle reference here that you could conquer this whole world, but it would mean nothing if you didn't gain the kingdom. So if you gained the kingdom, you're more than the conqueror who conquered the whole world. Convoluted, I know. But that's how my mind works, nonetheless. Um, But nothing would be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. So the chapter begins with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. Not now, not ever in eternity. And so there's this wonderful eschatology in the chapter where the beginning speaks of freedom and the fear of condemnation. The latter speaks of no fear of separation from God throughout eternity. The matter is sealed with some of the most soaring language in all of Scripture. For I am persuaded, the apostle says, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a promise. What an eschatology. An eschatology is a a study of the things of the end. But for the Christian, there is no end. It goes on forever. The chapter compares, if you remember, the carnal mind, the mind man is born with, the natural thinking apparatus that is born into sin and is limited and corrupted by the sin into which he was born. The natural mind, he compares it to the spiritual mind. What's that? The mind he's given, not when he's born, but when he's born again. The spirit, having having entered into the man, gives him a new mind. The Bible says we have the mind of Christ, so bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Friends, if you are a Christian today, if you have made your peace with God and the Holy Spirit resides in you, you have that peace. You have that spiritual mind. And during your day, it should happen Many times, in my life it happens many times, this thought I'm thinking, this thing I'm doing, does this comport with my Christian understanding of bringing my thoughts into captivity to the obedience of Christ? My whole life, 
is an examination of myself to see if I'm walking with God. That is what the apostle is impressing upon us here. With the spiritual mind, with the natural mind, the carnal mind, we can't even conceive the things of God, for they are foolishness to us at that point in our lives. I remember that point in my life. I remember when my new mind, my new soul, my spirit was renewed by God himself. And I hope that you have such a season in your life as well. The mind of the spirit-born believer is said to have been set free. Set free by the intervention of God himself. You were in bondage before. You could only think so far about your own eternity. For what the law could not do, Paul wrote, God did. What the law of Moses could not do in that it was weak through the flesh... God did. The law was great. It still is. It's the standard of righteousness before God. But it has no power in it to make you obey it, to make you righteous. And God knew that. And the people of faith all the way down through the ages from Abraham to Jesus had the law. And they trusted in the law. And they thought it would give them salvation. And so they had peace in that. They were the chosen people, and they rested in that thought. Keep that in mind as we go through this. Jesus had many quarrels with the Jews, with the Pharisees, with the religious leaders of the day about this, about this very thing, didn't he? Telling them, you think you're saved because you have Moses. Or, you think you're saved because you're sons of Abraham. Abraham loved me, he said. Before Abraham was, I am, he said. And they picked up stones to stone him. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did. Now the chapter also talks about other things. Not just this assurance. Not just this wonderful eschatology. Not only this relationship between the mind you were born with and the mind you were born again into. But it also talks about the work of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit. And it talks about it more than any other chapter in the New Testament. The chapter will describe in some detail the continuing work upon the hearts of believers. And so we're told as the chapter goes on that the Holy Spirit does a number of things. He helps in our weaknesses, the Bible says. I'm sure you have prayed that, knowing that verse from Romans 8. It says he makes intercession for us in our prayers because we don't always know what to pray for as we ought. So he helps in our weaknesses. He helps, he intercedes in our prayer life. In other words, he interprets our prayers to God so that they're righteous prayers. The Spirit inspires hope. He urges perseverance. He creates expectation for what the Apostle calls, friends, the deliverance of all creation from the corruption that it too has undergone. Friends, God loves you. But He also loves the created world that He put you into. He loves the world. And men destroy the world. They corrupt the world. Its systems it's very creation, and God will clean that up. 
It creates expectation. He will deliver all creation from the corruption that the fall in Eden put upon it. I'll talk about that somewhat as we go into this. And so as believers have been set free from the law of sin and death, so does creation itself groan and labor, Paul says, to see that same deliverance. Creation is crying out for deliverance. All of creation will one day be set free from the bondage of corruption and delivered into the same glorious liberty promised to the saints. I've often imagined what that would be like. Have you ever imagined what that would be like when the world is remade to suit the saints better? Well, one thing I think, we won't be at war with nature the way we've seen in the last few days. I'm thinking, I mean, maybe you're with me on this. I'm thinking of a world without mosquitoes. What do you think? Or maybe a world where there's mosquitoes in the, in the food chain, but they don't bite and spread Nile virus and other such things, right? Maybe they still have a place, because even mosquitoes, I suppose, are fearfully and wonderfully made. What are all the things that would happen? Nature would not be against man anymore. And so Isaiah wrote of it. He wrote, the wolf will dwell with the lamb. Friends, that couldn't happen today. The wolf would eat the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child should lead them. Talks about children playing with these dangerous animals, even vipers, and having no fear because all of the corruption that was built into the creation by sin has dissipated and been delivered. And Romans 8 gives us a great portal into that piece of eschatology. But here in these few verses, Paul makes known to us not only the reality of our conversion, not only the benefits of our deliverance in Christ, but also he speaks a bit on the process of that deliverance. How are we delivered? What are the mechanics of it, if you will? And so he focuses upon the spiritual journey of the believer out of bondage into what he calls this glorious liberty. We have transitioned. By the way, I'm I think that's a new word in the American vocabulary, transitioned. My spell check went all wild and would never let me write the word. I'm kind of glad it's not in the dictionary yet. Maybe we can bypass that little piece of history, but um, we have transitioned. We're in transition from being recipients of the spirit of bondage into being received by the spirit of adoption. So we received the spirit of bondage to fear, it said. Something made us fear for our own lives and our own eternal lives. Something made us fear. It's called a spirit here. And then we have this spirit of adoption, which we all recognize as another name for the Holy Spirit. And so this whole new subject is interjected here. Verse 17 says of the faithful that we're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So through this process of adoption, we have become his children. We are the children of God. He has legally adopted us. And if we're children, then we'll inherit what is our father's and what is our older brother's. God, Christ, and the kingdom is our inheritance through the laws of adoption. Friends, if there's one thing Romans knew about, it was law. 
It was about Roman civil law and laws of adoption. At this time, Augustus, Octavian, called himself Augustus, was the emperor of Rome, the first emperor of Rome. But he was not the son of Caesar. He was the adopted son of Caesar. If anyone knew about the benefits of adoption, it was this Roman world. And there were many other elites of that day who were adopted and and inherited their adopted wealth of their father. And so this would have gone um, well understood to his Roman audience of the day. Now, I think it's profitable for us to consider the process of the Spirit's work, the process of his work in us that leads up to and accomplishes in us not only salvation, but this unappeachable assurance of salvation. How does that work? It has to be what he says later, the spirit bearing witness with our spirit. We're God's own children, friends. That's established. Christ is the only begotten son. There's a bit of doctrine, right? And we are the adopted sons. The begotten son proceeded from the father in a very mystical way, but that is our doctrine. We're the adopted sons and daughters of God. We are as he is in the the affections of the Father. We are as Christ is in God's affections. Consider the words of Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane when when he said to God, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you sent me And have loved them as you have loved me. What a perfect oneness. We are truly the inheritors of all that belongs to Jesus Christ. Joint heirs with Christ. Now you may remember my simple Bible reading lesson of last week. Remember my Bible reading lesson that a text of Scripture falls into one of two categories. It's either descriptive or it's prescriptive, right? Now that's simplistic and there's some gray area in that. But overall, I think we can go to a passage of the Bible and say that God's just telling me that that was done at one time for my edification so I can understand how he works. And over here, he's actually telling me to do this very thing. It's a prescription for all of us to do. In my example that I gave you, very simplistic, we told Noah to build an ark. That's for our understanding that Noah built an ark. That's not a prescription that we should all build arks, right? And so either a passage is descriptive, meaning instructional, or it's prescriptive, meaning necessary to imitate in our own lives. A prescription is a scripture that's necessary to imitate. Both are important and both contribute to sanctification. But it's the prescriptions in the word that build our faith incrementally throughout our walk with God. Prescriptions like what? Some very familiar ones to you. Be anxious for nothing. That's a prescription. God's telling us all to do that in prayer. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving... Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That's something you can do. It's prescribed for you to do. Enter into the promise. Be anxious for nothing. When you give it to God, let it stay there. You gave it to him, 
in the first place because you knew it was beyond your own handling of it. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Great prescription of God's word to the Philippians. To the Galatians, he wrote, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. There's a prescription. We recognize it right away. That will build our sanctification. Bear one another's burdens. How about no longer be children? Friends, the, church, the body of Christ has to grow up. We have to grow and mature in Christ. And that happens primarily through a deepening knowledge of God through the Word. It happens through preaching. It happens through prayer. It happens through observation. It happens by walking in your daily life side by side with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and going through all the trials and tribulations that this corrupt world continues to lay on us. But we have this enduring power that's within us. As I said, the law had no motive power to make you obey it. But the Holy Spirit is the motive power to give you obedience to God. So bear one another's burdens. No longer be children tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. You know what that says to me? Will you get off the internet once in a while and read your Bible? There's so many winds of doctrine and conspiracy theorists that trouble the people of God when the word has been made plain to us for centuries, friends. There's no doubt about some of these things. But speak the truth in love. Grow up in all things into him who is the head. James gives this great prescription. Therefore, lay aside all wickedness. Lay aside all wickedness. Pastor Bill, very rightly this morning, gave us a time of confession before God that we would make ourselves right as we stand symbolically at the cross of Christ before the elements of his broken body and shed blood. And so put away all wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. Or what about John, who wrote this prescription? Do not love the world. <laughs> Pretty simple. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Friends, we're, we're attached to the things in the world. Let's face it. There's so many things that we're attached to. Think of people who lost their homes in this last act of God. You know, it's interesting. I can call it an act of God because I'm a preacher, but friends, insurance companies call it an act of God. It's just a phrase to them. To me, it's a reality. So we're, attra- we're attached to these things, but as Pastor Ken used to say, don't set your heart on these things. They are not for you to own eternally. Right? They say you can't take it with you. Friends, once you get there, you're going to be so glad you didn't take it with you. You're just not going to need it. Do not love the world or the things in the world. But he goes further. John loves to give the black and the white. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Be careful about your attachment to material things. There's another prescription. And so my Bible lesson is simple, but it's essential. And now I said all these things to set you up that I have another little Bible lesson for today. And um, it has to do with simple linguistic and contextual rules about how we interpret the scripture that is before us. Let me ask you this. Is it necessary that I have Dwayne throw the switch again to bring down the seat restraints when I go through this so that nobody will get too jostled? Like the roller coaster ride, the bar comes. All right, Dwayne, set the thing. 
Okay, you're not going anywhere till you hear this. And so we have our verse, friends, and so our verse presents to us two different spiritual conditions of man. Paul speaks of this spirit of bondage. Where does that come from, that spirit of bondage? Have you ever wondered? Is it spirit, small s, because it's, it's just a feeling? Is a spirit a feeling? You know, there's places in scriptures where this, with pneuma, the word for spirit, right, refers to a feeling or a, disp- a disposition of man, if you will. Um, but where would that spirit come from, that spirit of bondage, right? And he speaks of this spirit of adoption, which we said was the Holy Spirit, in which our text capitalizes. So that leads us to believe that in the context here, we're talking about two different spirits or two different actions of the same spirit, perhaps. And so in these verses, we, dis- um, we see distinctly different spiritual influences, don't we? Paul speaks of the spirit of bondage, which brings fear, and the spirit of adoption, which brings this intimate affection with God, where we call him Abba, the Hebrew designation for daddy. It's a very intimate thing for the child to say, Abba, Father. So we have this descriptive detail of how God draws the saint to himself, And though it's instructive and builds into us an understanding of spiritual reality, it is a description only. These things, friends, are not done by us. They're done to us. Neither the spirit of bondage to fear or the spirit of adoption emerge out of our hearts, but rather out of the heart of Almighty God in our behalf. Hence the controversy that I bring up this morning. Both spirits... I am contending, emerge from God. The controversy is over the source. Paul says we receive it. The word receive is there. We receive it. He doesn't say we produce it. He didn't say we walk daily in it. He said we receive it and we'll not receive it again because the spirit of adoption has come. Now, in order to make the point I'd like to make, I have to put forth an informed opinion on the matter of textual integrity here. I've read the best there is to read on the subject, and we're led to sometimes make our own decisions in, in these things. I know we like to rest upon things that we've always regarded as certainties. And then you have me to help you not be able to do that. It's my contention that one of those certainties is not at all certain with regards to Romans 15. If your text is like mine, the word spirit, pneuma, in the Greek, right, is mentioned two times in the verse. One is capitalized because it is the custom of translators to capitalize names and pronouns that pertain to God. If we talk about Jesus in the uh, second person, we say him with a capital H, right? I want you to know none of that appears in the Greek text. Those capitals aren't used. You have to totally go by custom of the English language and by the context to determine when the word pneuma is the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of man. It's all by the context. Even the translators have to do this. There are no hints. The most ancient manuscripts give no hint because every letter in the ancient manuscripts is capitalized. And in the Textus Receptus, which we're going to talk about, which is the the received text during the time of 
Reformation that all the languages use to translate Scripture, none of the letters are capitalized. So, in other words, the capital S there definitely refers to the Holy Spirit, and I'm sure you with me have no problem with that, but I want you to know the capitalization of that S is not inspired by God. It's a decision of man. I just want you to understand. We talked about this a couple times in the Thursday night session. I wasn't sure um, how well it, was, uh, it came across or was understood, but um, in this one verse, we have a capital S spirit and a small s spirit. And so by a simple translator's decision, we have to conclude that there are two spirits and two separate spiritual actions that bring us out of bondage and into adoption. And in order for us to do that, we would have to say that the spirit of bondage, right, that Paul talks about, emanates out of the unregenerate man, the natural man in his carnal mind. We would have to say that. We would also have to say that carnal men go about their lives. Now, you look out there in the world and you consider the difficulties you have with your evangelism and in leading people to Christ. What is most striking to me is people are not in bondage to fear. They're really quite confident in themselves. They don't need you. They don't need your religion. They're quite confident. They're even happy. I have friends who have no concept of heavenly or spiritual things who are so totally content with their lives as they're living them in the moment. Now, we could say, well, circumstances, tough circumstances will change them. Will it? Will it really? You know, I lived through 9-11. I was old in 9-11. I was in my 40s. So I'm saying old because some of you are like little children and you don't really remember it the way some of us do. I remember 9-11. 9-11 turned everybody to God for like an hour. No, really, it seemed like that. I mean, there were people on television and news media talking about God and his hand upon us and all of these things. And all of the preachers that for many, many years said, you know, America is deep in sin as God is going to punish America. And then when it happened, these preachers were forced to back off because they couldn't, they, they didn't have what it took to say to that society who had this sort of squishy view of an all-loving universal father god who would never do something like that it had to be done by someone else and these and these pastors backed off i remember d james kennedy did not back off he came out and said i think america has enough sin to keep terrorists busy for a thousand years and so where did this where did this spirit of bondage come from circumstances didn't make it arise people got over it quickly you know after world war 1 and 2 some of the most tumultuous times in human history throughout the Western world, we have less and less Christians at the end than we had at the beginning. Ever, in my day, I was a TV watcher. We had this little thing. It was called a TV. It was this big, and it had rabbit ears on it, sometimes foil. There was none of this. You had to walk up to that thing and click it and walk up to it and click it again, and you got this really bad picture. But we had... Uh, a black and white TV. All our neighbors had black and white TVs. There was one family. We thought they were the poor family. They had a color TV. But um, maybe that's why they were poor. They bought all the... the uh, if, if they were today, they would have bought the latest Apple product. But um, I would watch the, the uh, programs in that day. Situation comedies. Now, 
I know nobody remembers Ozzy and Harriet. They were a nice family. They had kids. It was my three sons. Fred McMurray had three sons. All the old people are going, yep, yep, yep. And they had all these wonderful things. Leave it to Beaver, right? They had Father Knows Best. You could still say that in those days. I wouldn't be surprised if there was a show that came out today that said Mother's, Mother Knows Best and Father Don't Know Nothing. In fact, in fact Father isn't even here. But um, in those days, after World War II, you had all these black and whites. Let me tell you, the Cleaver family never sat down at the table and said a blessing. They sat down at the table an awful lot in that show. There was even one about how Beaver wouldn't eat Brussels sprouts. But the whole show was about that. But no one ever thanked God or, or gave a thought to God in any of this culture, this popular culture at the time. And it only got worse, friends. World War II didn't do it. September 11th didn't do it. I remember during September 11th, George Bush was the president for, what, a couple of weeks or something, right? Um, or not, No, a few months. A few months. It was September, and of course, he gets one in in January. So he, he, was the, uh, he was the Republican president of the time. Rudy Giuliani was mayor of New York City, and these were both conservatives. Rudy, uh, Judy was... Um, uh, Rudy was hard on crime, and he cleaned up the city, and he was getting a lot of praises. We had business owner friends from Manhattan that pr- gave him all these praises. But the liberal factions hated these guys. But I remember there was a time in the afternoon when Rosie O'Donnell had a TV show. Now, she was sort of like the Ellen of that day. And she was totally liberal and against all of these guys. But when this happened... She was converted. She came out and said, President Bush is like a father and Rudy. They're like fathers helping us through this time. We're like children, and they're leading us and informing us. And that lasted, i got to say, a week. Maybe. Circumstances are not the spirit of bondage again to fear. It must be something else. Friends, what about COVID? You would think if circumstances, dire circumstances and shortages and shutdowns and firings of people, they fired 60,000 soldiers who wouldn't get a vaccine. They fired all kinds of medical people who weeks before they said were the heroes of the country. The country's in this turmoil. We had supply chain problems. We had all these things going on. You would think the people would come to Christ. Friends, they emptied the churches and they stayed empty. COVID didn't do it either. Now, why am I saying all this? Because the spirit of adoption, or rather the spirit of bondage to fear, does not come from inside of the fearer. It comes from outside. It comes from God. I've come to believe that the apostle refers to an action of the Holy Spirit in both cases of the verse. And it's my contention that such an action fits better into the entire context of the chapter as well as the last chapter and with other companion texts that refer to the same function of the Spirit of God in convicting sinners and converting them to sainthood. It begins with this fear. It doesn't come from you. You're happily walking along without any knowledge of God. In fact, you want no conversation about God because it's foolishness to you, the Bible tells us. Right? You know, our our non-Christian brethren aren't walking around begging for us to tell them how to get out of their fear. They're more confident than we are in many things. 
So in order to do, to show you how I come to this conclusion, I have to first disabuse ourselves of a textual practice that is not a textual rule so that you won't think I'm going against the word of God. You understand me? And that has to do with an educated assumption of the translator. Now, I'd like you to recall our doctrine about inerrancy. You know what I mean when I say inerrancy? It means no errors. We have a doctrine of inerrancy with regard to the Bible. Friends, inerrancy is the belief that the Bible is without error or fault in its teaching. All evangelicals, by definition, believe that. We're called evangelicals because we believe the Bible is the written word of God. Period. That's why we're called evangelicals. Evangel is the word translated gospel. We're the ones that really believe the gospel. And we believe that's the foundational truth of our religion. We have God's mind written in language. The Bible's the word of God, end of sentence. Agreed? There is, however, this one thing that becomes important in that doctrine. Just so you understand, all of the Reformed confessions will say this, that inerrancy pertains to the original autographs only. Everything else is a slightly lesser iteration of that doctrine. Friends, God did not speak in English. The, the Bible's not written in English. It's written in Hebrew. There's actually a Babylonian section. And it's written in Koine Greek, the New Testament. Those are other languages, very different than our languages. Very hard. It takes a great work of scholarship and education to put into one language what another language is saying and to get every sedilla right. You know, if you change a comma, it can make the difference between the whole meaning of the sentence. And so I want you to know, we believe the word is inerrant, but it's the original autographs, which, by the way, are not in existence. What we have is copies, many copies of them. We know they're exactly right for the most part. In fact, there's a number, something like 99% correct, because they all agree. I mean, we couldn't do that in this room. I'll write a passage of Scripture, put it together, and see how many mistakes there would be. There would be a multitude of mistakes. But the copyists throughout the centuries were trained in copying these manuscripts exactly as they were given. So even when one manuscript is wrong, there's another hundred manuscripts that are not wrong in the same place. So we know that this is the wrong one. You understand how these things are compiled over the years? So it's the original autographs that are inspired. What we use to compile our modern-day text are many copies of the original that proceed to us from antiquity. And so when the ancient Greek texts are translated into English, or when Luther translated his into German, or Waldo into French, or, um, or, or for those who translated into Spanish for that matter, they all use the same Greek text. I brought it with me as an object lesson. Look at the shape that it's in. It's falling apart. It's got a bad binder on it. There's a new one in the library I'm going to appropriate. But this is the interlinear. This is the Greek text. A translator can put forth ideas and subjective theories that the original may or may not have intended to put forth. And so translations of Scripture come from what's referred to as the textus receptus. Don't you love Latin? I feel so smart saying textus receptus. I could say received text. Now, there are some hurdles in the translation process. Now, what is the received text? Well, it's the Greek text of the Reformation era put together from 
Jerome's Latin Vulgate Bible of the 5th century, interpreted by Erasmus, a great Dutch scholar, by Theodore Beza, who was Calvin's right-hand man, a man named Stephanus, who was said to have put all of the, the uh, chapter numbers and verse numbers. Those aren't inspired. The chapters and verses aren't inspired, right? Someone had, and there's an old story of Stephanus was going along on his horse, numbering all the verses, and the horse must have tripped here because um, he, uh, he should have made a chapter here and he didn't do it. He just kept going or vice versa. Um, so we have these great scholars who put together what we call the Textus Receptus, and all the translations today come from that. Whatever Western European language it is comes from that. Ancient manuscripts, friends, have a couple of problems. Different languages have different problems. Ancient manuscripts don't have paragraphs or chapter designations. Those are kind of important things. Just to give you an example of what this might be like, there was a Puritan here in Massachusetts who lived way out in the western frontier of Roxbury at the time. And his name was John Eliot. And that was the end of civilization right there in Roxbury. And the rest was the untamed wilderness of the Aborigine. And what did Eliot do? He went out there. He became friends with the Algonquin Indians. And he wrote them a Bible in their own language. The trouble is, they had no written language. Imagine the task of putting these concepts. They don't even have concepts of faith. There's no Algonquin word for faith or grace. He had to come up with all these things. Translations are massive works, and they're not inspired. It takes a work of human ingenuity and, and um, dedication to the preservation of God's word. For another whole culture, he did that. This is very similar to that. English was virtually an unknown language when the Bible was written. And so one problem was the paragraphs. There's no paragraphs. Ancient manuscripts have few paragraphs or none. So the decision to indent is the decision of the translators, and the context offers him clues as to any pertinent changes. You remember Dr. Moo, Douglas Moo, great translator of the New International Commentary on the New Testament on the, on the Book of Romans? Um, he disagrees with the spacing decision in most of the major translations. He writes, most commentators put a major, Blake, a major break in the flow of Paul's argument after verse 11, but the break is better after verse 13. He's disagreeing with all the other commentators because he's a great commentator himself. He's offering his own opinion. He goes on to explain his reasons for his conclusion, and he makes a legitimate argument. So you see, the original written word is divinely inspired and therefore inerrant, but the translation of it contains some sub subjective human decision-making. And so another consideration is the use of capital letters. Now, as I said, I use Berry's interlinear Greek New Testament. Now, as I go through this, you have the whole New Testament written in Greek, and right under each word is the English, just so you know how this works. All right? You know, in, in Greek, word order isn't important. It's very important in English. In other languages, it's not so much. We say the red bicycle, and the French say the bicycle red. You wouldn't say bicycle red in English. It would confuse everyone. And it's even more so. Word order doesn't matter where word endings are paramount in the ancient languages. Um, I'm not pretending to be a Greek scholar. That's why I use this thing, because I'm not a Greek scholar, but I have this, and I can read. 
And in the introduction to the text, there are several explanatory notes. One pertains to the original text. Another refers to the problems with paragraph. And another describes the problem from language to language with the use of capital letters. All right? And so let me quote you from the introductory notes of the interlinear, interlinear where capital letters are concerned. And so on capitals, the notes say, the only remark needed here is in reference to the names of God, of Christ and the Holy Spirit. The greatest difficulty is touching the word spirit. In some places, it is very difficult to say whether the Holy Spirit as a person or the spirit of the Christian is referred to, and he gives an example from Romans here. And then he writes, and if sometimes a small letter and sometimes a capital had been placed to the word pneuma, meaning spirit, in the Greek, persons would naturally conclude that the question was indisputably settled. But in some cases, the decision is really doubtful and becomes a question for the spiritual judgment of the reader. Now, I've said all this so that you can know I'm making a spiritual judgment. I'm not going against the word of God. I'm rendering an opinion that the great commentators, far wiser than me, some of which have come to this same conclusion. So that's the disclaimer on capital letters. The Greek portion of the interlinear uses small letters for both uses of the word spirit. And I brought it here in case anyone wants to see it, I can show you. Pneuma, the spirit of bondage, and pneuma, the spirit of adoption, are both small pies. Now what do I mean by pie? That's a Greek letter pie. Okay, And why would there be a pi in pneuma? Because even the Greeks have silent letters. Like if you use the word pneumonia, it starts with a P because it comes from the Greek, right? Or the word pneumatic. So in both cases, the spirit is a lowercase letter. So it was left up to the translator to decide should he put a capital because it's a tradition in English to do that, Right? So I've said all this not to confuse you. Have I confused everybody? Not to diminish our confidence in our English versions, but rather to demonstrate that though we have become accustomed to an English-speaking world and our beloved English translations, myself included, it is not against any doctrinal or textual rule to form an opinion that the translator did not make the best choice in this particular place. All right? And I've read several competent commentators on the issue Every one of them offers an opinion. Some of the most highly regarded disagree with my assessment. But there are good textualists dating back to the Puritan era who have come to this conclusion, and I have followed their lead in this. So I'm not alone in my opinion. In fact, here's another quotation from Dr. Moo. Douglas Moo writes, Many expositors conclude that the spirit of slavery spirit of bondage, right, must also designate the Holy Spirit. And then he writes this, many of the Puritans followed by Lloyd-Jones, isn't it great Dr. Moore reads Lloyd-Jones just like I do, followed by Lloyd-Jones saw a reference here to the sense of slavery created by the working of God in the heart of the person under conviction by God's Spirit. Now Dr. Moore didn't agree with the Puritans and with and with Dr. Lloyd-Jones. I do agree with him. And I'm going to tell you why. 
I've taken the part of Lloyd-Jones and the Puritan voices that he quotes to show that I'm not alone in this view. I want you to know, I didn't just sit home and say, I think I'm going to change the capital letter in the, in, the, in, the, in the Textus Receptus. And so my case is this. The apostle declares to the saints, to those who are given the Holy Spirit, here called the spirit of adoption, that they will not be given a spirit of bondage again to fear. I think if we look at the word-for-word translation, the word again is paramount in our understanding here. You couldn't be given the spirit of bondage again to fear if it wasn't given once in the beginning in the first place. So note that the word again, it clearly indicates that you once did receive the spirit. And my contention is that both are from God and that both refer to a work of the Holy Spirit in the unregenerate man. If it's not that, let's say that translators got it right. If it's not the Holy Spirit that creates the spirit of fear, then what is the source of the Spirit? I think I've demonstrated pretty well that it couldn't come from us. Men in the carnal mind, just the whole problem with him is he doesn't fear God because he thinks the whole concept is foolishness. It's not there. You have to preach the Word of God and maybe the Spirit will work to give him a fear of God and a spirit of bondage. And if it's not, and if we don't know the source of it, then what's the nature of it? Is it just people are all walking around with the spirit of bondage? I don't think you see that in the people in the outside world. They should be that way, but they're not. They're blissfully ignorant. Only the man on his way to Christ, moved by the Holy Spirit, has this urging, like the man in Romans 7, this urging, to be delivered. Verse 16 said, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. It seems to me to be the consistent work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness with our spirit within the spirit of man to convict him of sin. Friends, a man does not convict himself of sin. I think I've demonstrated pretty well that circumstances don't convict a man of his sin for very long. Right? And I'll refer us again to the man of Romans 7 to make my point. As you know, I have argued that the wretched man of Romans 7 is as yet unregenerate. Now, we've had a lot of arguments about this thing in here, and I mean friendly, good, educated arguments, and I appreciate those. But I think to assume this is the Holy Spirit and that the, and that the wretched man of Romans 7 is unregenerate go together in a context. Um, now, the man's unregenerate, but he is in a state of conviction of sin, which my contention is can only come from God. The devil does not convict you of sin. He'd rather you stay blissfully ignorant. Wouldn't that be the strategic thing to do? He sees the desperation. The man of Romans 7 sees his desperation and his soul's ability to conform to the law of God. And so the law or rather his soul's inability to conform to the law of God. And so the law that he thought was sent to serve him, he found condemns him. But the law didn't reveal that. The spirit of bondage revealed that in him. The spirit of conviction suddenly revealed that in him. And though it is God's own spiritual standard, it has no power to save. Hence the desperate final plea of the man who said, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, a man does not come to that conclusion. 
from any other source but the Spirit of God. We can see throughout the Scripture and in many extra-biblical historical persons that this is the process toward salvation. The unregenerate man, the carnal-minded man, the man who cannot even conceive of spiritual reality apart from his own imagination. He has no thought of the divine. He is not in fear for his life. We wish that he would be and turn to Christ, but that's an act of God. It's not up to us. The farmer plants the seed, which is the gospel, but God gives growth, which is the movement upon his spirit. So the unregenerate man has no thought of the divine. He has no fear of God. He's quite content in and of himself. That's why the man in Romans can say, I was alive once without the law. I was happy. I was okay. But something happened and drove him to that despair. The reality here is that before the conviction of the Holy Spirit, every man is quite content with himself. He has no appetite for spiritual conversation because it's foolishness to him, Paul wrote to the Corinthians. This is the false confidence of the sinner. That's a term I think we should use. Yeah, I made it up, but it's called the false confidence of the sinner. Sinners walk around all the time, confident that they're okay. Why wouldn't I be going to heaven if there is such a place? doesn't even care if there's such a place, but if there is, he assumes he's going because he's such a good guy. People walk around with confidence. They don't need Christ. They don't need your Bible thumping. That's the whole problem with evangelism is getting through that. And you can't get through it. Only the spirit of fear of God can get through to it. That's the mindset of the unbeliever. He's, he's a man happily living his life, lapping up all the blessings of God, not even stopping to thank God, not even recognizing that God is the source of all his good fortune. He just thinks, I'm a lucky guy. Nothing bad has befallen me. If there's a God, he must be favoring me for my goodness. That's the conclusion that the man on the street comes to. That was certainly the disposition of Saul of Tarsus. Remember Saul of Tarsus, friends? Paul the Apostle. At another time. He said this very thing about his confidence to the Philippians. He said, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. And then he gave his resume, right? He gave his whole, his whole pedigree. He's a Hebrew. He, um, he's a Pharisee. He was a persecutor of the church, showing his zeal. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, he was blameless. Friends, Saul was a man driven by his own human sense of personal righteousness. He was confident in and of himself until Christ hit him on the road. He happily and zealously did many things in the name of God, a God he thought he knew until real conviction came. The law didn't bring the conviction. The Holy Spirit brought the conviction. And that's what Paul, when he made his case to Agrippa in Acts 26, he said, I, or indeed I myself thought, I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. 
And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. Friends, he's confident in his own righteousness. He's killing the Christians and he's confessing it to the king. That's the natural man. The man who believes he serves God. And by the way, I be- when he says, I compelled them to blaspheme, what did he mean? I, conf- I compelled them to confess Christ. Because to him, that was blasphemy. Of course, it's not blasphemy. That's the natural man, friends. That's the zealous Pharisee who thinks he's serving God, confident in his flesh. The man who believes to serve Christ is to blaspheme the God of Moses. The man who desires to serve a God of his own making to justify himself. There is no sense of conviction. No spirit of bondage to fear is in him of himself. Only after the light of heaven is upon him is he convinced. The conviction, if it's true conviction of sin, friends, always comes from heaven. It is my contention, it is always a work of the Holy Spirit. And so we read this, Paul's confession further to King Agrippa. At midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun. This is noontime, friends, in one of the sunniest places on earth, right? And he sees a light brighter than that Syrian sun. The sun was shining all around me and those who journeyed with me. And what did the heavenly voice do? It sent him to the world to proclaim that light to all men. And so he says, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. He's turning them away from Satan. Conviction doesn't justify Satan. It's turning the sinner away from Satan. I contend with you this morning that this is the same spirit who reveals the darkness that reveals the light. And I'll give some examples, biblical examples. For until the light has come, a man cannot know that all he knows is darkness. Until that light comes, friends, brighter than the sun, Until that light is upon him, he lives confidently, even happily, in his darkness. The darkness of sin, friends, it blinds us. We don't know it's darkness. We don't know that noonday on the road to Damascus is darker than the light of Christ until the light's on us. Until that light, brighter than the sun, is upon him, he lives confidently in darkness. Why would Satan disturb such a perfect, sinful contentment? A man is in bondage to sin, but his carnal mind perceives bondage as freedom. The carnal mind thinks you're in bondage because you have commandments to follow. The carnal mind doesn't know that morality is freedom and immorality is bondage. It's not only bondage, it's cost prohibitive. Look at our society and the wreck we've made of it with all the immorality. So what is this spirit? Is it a feeling? Well, if so, it can't come from man himself. It must come from God to the man who's confident. Is it about circumstances? I think not, as I mentioned several examples. An equally famous example is that of Isaiah. As soon as the prophet was able to see himself in the presence of God with winged seraphim, singing all around God, giving praises, declaring his glory... 
The glory that the prophet knew in his visions, but now he sees face to face. And what was his reaction? It wasn't joy. When Isaiah came into the presence of God, it was a spirit of fear. Isaiah said, woe is me, I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He thought when he saw God, he would die. He wasn't like... Thank God you finally showed up. I imagined you being just this wonderful. It convicted him of sin. The light was upon his own sense of unworthiness. That spirit of bondage comes from God. Jonah is a well-known example. From the belly of the fish, Jonah prayed, the Bible says. And so Jonah writes, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. Sheol is the the grave, the place of the dead. He compares being in the fish with the grave. I mean, why wouldn't he? I, um, he says, I cried and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep. You cast me into the heart of the darkness of the sea. Then I said, I've been cast out of your sight. Yet I'll look again toward your holy temple. God does both. God convicts of sin and reveals righteousness and reveals a blessed deliverance in the future. Satan wasn't there in the fish with him. God was there. It was no foreign spirit that cast out the prophet. It was his God calling him, refining him, warning him, showing him how to warn others. Friends, remember the rich young ruler? When he came to the Lord... Go back, it's in three of the Gospels. Luke 18 has a great record of it. The rich young ruler comes. He's young, he's rich, he's invulnerable, and he follows the word of God. Why wouldn't he? He has everything he needs. And he comes to Christ and he said, uh, what shall I do? And Christ names a few of the commandments. He said, I've done these and more all my life. And he's walking away happily. And Jesus said, oh, one more thing. <laughs> Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And he went away sorrowfully. He didn't need the devil to come in and give him a spirit of fear. Jesus gave him that. Jesus put a crack in his world. And then it said in, in one of the, uh, the Gospels that Jesus sent him away sorrowful, but he loved the man. So the rich young ruler came happy, content, and self-satisfied, but he left sad and sorrowful because the words of Christ convicted him of his deficit. There are some who say that the Spirit of God does not produce the spirit of bondage of fear. You know, I don't know how we would come to that conclusion, but I think in modern-day evangelical, we like everything nice and everything neat, and good things are from God and bad things are from the devil or something like that. But it's my contention that God's the only one who can produce that fear in us. Others argue 2 Corinthians states that now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And they ask, how can a spirit of liberty be also a spirit of bondage? Is that really a conundrum for you people today? I mean, I would ask, how can a God of love be a God of wrath? Can't God be complex? Can't he have more than one function at one time? How can a father who gives good gifts to his son also punish and chastise the same son? It's because God is a complex being. And love is a complex thing, friends. And the road to salvation comes with both fear 
in trembling and joy inexpressible. I give you Luther. Have you looked into his life? He was under this feeling of bondage again to fear for years of his life, trying to expunge it with all types of personal contrivances and starving himself and going sleepless and whipping himself and climbing the Scala Sancta on his knees, saying a rosary on every stone in Rome. And nothing worked until he read, the just shall live by faith. But it was the Spirit leading him to understand that. You know, John Bunyan wrote a book called Grace Abounding. And he takes the opinion that I have come to believe, and Lloyd-Jones puts forth. And Bunyan said he was in that position in his life, that condition of fear and loathing, if I may, for 18 months. He said he came to the place where I wish I wasn't a human being. I wish I was a dog or some senseless being. I can't take this overwhelming fear of existence. It was all of God. He said it was the Holy Spirit leading him, and it took 18 months to break it. What about the people of Enfield, Connecticut in 1741? When Jonathan Edwards woke up one morning and he was going to be the visiting preacher there in Enfield. And he woke up in Northfield, Massachusetts in the morning, got on his horse, took his two-hour gallop to Enfield, got off his horse and went in and he preached the very famous sinners in the hand of an angry God. And all those people were hanging on the pews thinking they were going to fall into hell. That was the Holy Spirit doing that. That was the Holy Spirit leading them to know that, yeah, you got pretty good little Puritan lives, but there's a lot of problems in this room. Look at yourself. The great revival broke out again. The great awakening. It was at the end of it. It was, part of, it was a renewal even of the great awakening of just a few years earlier. It was the Word of God that did that. You know, if I read that sermon, I've read that sermon several times. If I ever read that as my text in the morning, you would hate me. It is so convicting. It is so judgmental. I, I really, I can't imagine a modern day preacher saying it to a con congregation. We should. <laughs> we, we probably should. And I'm saying MacArthur just wrote one to Gavin Newsom, which um, we can take a look at later if you haven't seen it. And so how can a God of liberty be a God of a spirit of bondage? Why not? Why not? How can a God of love be a God of wrath or a father who punishes be the same father who loves? And the road to salvation comes with both fear and trembling and joy inexpressible. You'll not, you don't have to worry because you'll not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. You've come through it. And people will say to me after the service, I've never experienced that. Am I a Christian? Let me tell you. If you are a Christian, you did experience it. Now, everyone experiences it, not always the same intensity, but we all come to a place like Bunyan for 18 months, like Luther for years, right? Let me tell you another famous person who was under the conviction of the Holy Spirit for months and years before he came. I was. I was being led, yet I was still in my sin, and I couldn't get it all together. I love God. I want to serve God, but I love my sin. I want to keep it. And in that trial and in that season, I finally came to a place that I can nail down as the place where I gave it to God and everything changed and the Spirit came over me and I was renewed, just like these men. You have that time. You think about it, you'll recall it. 
So I say that the spirit of liberty that Paul speaks of represents the final outcome of the Spirit's work in our heart. And not the whole of the process that always begins with a dark sense of conviction. Yeah, the spirit of liberty is the outcome. That's what we have now. That wasn't what I had in my shed crying out to God, hung over, pleading for God to find me there. No, that was the fear and the bondage and not knowing how to come out of it. Which is why the apostle may say to the faithful that they'll not receive again that same spirit. The bondage is the spirit's work at the outset of our calling. The liberty is the outworking of the Spirit in our continuing walk with Christ. And it is good news that we'll not be given such a thing again. We may fear again, friends, but we may not fear for our eternal souls ever, ever again. For we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. The spirit of bondage is given at the beginning of your salvation road, and it's given only to the elect. It is a gift. You will not know it until it's over, but it is a gift to you. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening... God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Illegitimate means not your biological child and not your rightfully adopted child. With faith, you are the legitimate sons of the one God. Our Father, in Jesus' name, Do bless us, O Lord, with an understanding of these concepts before you, and let us know the blessed work of the Holy Spirit. If we have yet to come to you, Father, I pray that spirit of fear would be upon us. But if we are in you, Father, release us from it, and let us know that spirit of liberty, that spirit of adoption. Let us cry out that intimate, affectionate term, Abba, Father. And you will know that we are your children, and we will know that you are our God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.